You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. So let's suppose that a political party is stuck with a candidate that they simply don't want on the ballot. You know, a candidate who doesn't represent their values, a candidate who they believe has little chance of winning the election. This may sound like I'm referring to President-elect Donald Trump, but I assure you that I am not. Instead, Let me introduce you to the subject of today's story. His name is John J. McDevitt, a.k.a. Butch McDevitt, and a little more than a century ago, he put the Democratic Party in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, in a similar position. The best part, as you'll soon learn, was that he walked away from the situation with his dignity intact, a big smile on his face, and yet he still managed to retain the respect of his community for the rest of his life. Born on June 2, 1875, McDevitt spent many years hopping from one job to another, which included stints as a milkman and a coal miner. But his true life calling would come at the age of 22 when he claims to have read a story in a newspaper that said what the city really needed was a bright young man to be elected mayor. So he thought about it a bit and he decided that yes, he was a bright young man and therefore he should run for mayor of course, he ran for the office and lost. A few years later, he was elected to be constable of the city's 13th ward. In 1908, McDevitt sought re-election as constable on the Democratic ticket, but he also ran to become Wilkes-Barre mayor as a Republican. Now, running for office on two competing tickets was just as ludicrous back then as it is today, but Butch really didn't care. By this time, he had become well-known around the community for his great sense of humor, and no one took him seriously. Even McDevitt knew perfectly well he had no chance of becoming mayor, but he figured he had nothing to lose by trying. He did win re-election as constable, but he lost big time in the race for mayor. Out of 3,936 votes cast in total, he received just 356, or a little less than 10%. The event that would forever change his life occurred on October 7th of 1911. After days of counting the ballots, it was announced that John J. McDevitt had won the Democratic primary for county treasurer. He secured 1,864 out of 3,464 votes that were cast. The candidate that the party had been backing, a guy named Bolton G. Kuhn, 
had lost to McDevitt by 817 votes. The bigwigs of the county Democratic Committee were in a panic. They were certain that McDevitt would lose in the general election, and there was no way that they wanted an Irishman to be on their ticket. They knew there was only one way to get McDevitt to quit. They would need to buy him off. McDevitt demanded $5,000, which is about $128,000 today, and the right to endorse the opposing Republican candidate. The Democratic leaders balked at this outrageous request, so McDevitt threw it right back in their face. He raised his price to $6,000. In the end, a deal was reached. McDevitt was handed $1,500 in cold hard cash and the promise that he'd receive an additional $1,000 if the Democratic candidate won the election. But wait, there's more to the deal. Should the Democrats win, they also promised McDevitt a position in the commissioner's office. Ever the jokester, he claimed he arranged it so that his brother would work the morning shift, and then at noon he would go into work, ensuring that a McDevitt was always on the job. He told the press, At noon each day, the McDevitt brothers will change shifts. Rumors started to spread that McDevitt had sold out for $500, to which he responded, quote, I would ruin myself politically to sell out at that low figure, and the fellows who are putting around the story are miscreants of the lowest type whose aim is to bring my downfall in the world of politics. Butch offered the following statement to the public. Allow me to thank all those who voted for me at the recent primaries and also my friends who directly or indirectly assisted me in seeking the nomination for county treasurer. I spent little time and less money than any other aspirant, and although I had a walkover and actually little trouble in getting the ticket, I must say that it was a harder job to get off the ticket. McDevitt filed papers that he received a total of $7.60 from others, but he had spent none of it on his race for county treasurer. Instead, it was used to fight off a candidate who was running for city treasurer instead. In the end, the Democrats swept the election, McDevitt pocketed the $2,500, but he was never awarded that position in the commissioner's office. So what would you do if you had suddenly come into a large amount of money? After all, they had given McDevitt the equivalent of $65,000 in today's funds. So what would you do? Would you put it in the bank, purchase some stock, or, you know, if you're crazy, go bet it on the horses? Well, Bush McDevitt, ever the comedian, decided to do something far more memorable. Since he had technically won the Democratic nomination for county treasurer, he figured he's entitled to a banquet in his honor. And since no one offered to throw one for him, he decided to host one himself at a hotel in Wilkes-Barre a few weeks after he quit the race. Imagine a banquet where the master of ceremonies, the host, the guest speaker, and the honoree are all the same person. He introduced himself, he bowed to imaginary guests, and he gave the obligatory speech. It is a rare privilege to have such an honor bestowed upon me by myself, and I appreciate the consideration of the former candidate. So tonight, I pay tribute to myself and feel elated in knowing what it all means. And I assure you, Mr. McDevitt, that no one appreciates the honor bestowed upon you more keenly than yourself. This stunt brought McDevitt instant fame in the national papers. 
the Buffalo Evening Times wrote a glowing editorial of his actions. In part, they wrote, quote, We'd rather see a man like McDevitt not take himself seriously enough, but pull off his coat and help the party, than to have a man take himself so seriously he won't help the party at all. The paper continued, The spectacle of McDevitt acting as his own entertainment committee and after-dinner speaker is a great deal finer than would be the spectacle of McDevitt sulking because a delegation of obsequious gentlemen didn't appear and offer him a monogram watch or a gold-headed cane. But John McDevitt still had money in his pocket, and he was determined to spend all that remained of his election payoff. Butch felt that this money made him rich, and he wanted to live just one day as a rich person does. So he announced that he would accomplish this goal by going to New York City and spending all the remaining money in one single day. From this day forward, John J. McDevitt would forever be known as the millionaire for a day. You see, I have no particular reason for going to New York, but I feel that as the well-to-do take trips to the metropolis, it is up to me to get in the swim. Prior to his trip, McDevitt hired a valet, but he never bothered to ask his real name. Instead, Butch referred to him as Smoke, and that's because he felt the main purpose of his valet was to provide him with a lit cigar at all times. He also hired a physician, that's Dr. E.A. Sweeney, who was paid $25 per day. That's as long as Butch remained healthy. Should Butch get sick, the doctor would only receive $5 per day. Supposedly, the rich never get up before noon, so Butch did the same on January 12th of 1912. When he arose, Smoke was of course ready with that first lit cigar, and then a perfume bath was drawn, after which Smoke gave Butch a rub down. He then dined in the grill room of the best hotel in Wilkes-Barre, and he tipped the waiters $2 each. Adjusted for inflation, that's $50 per waiter. As he exited the hotel, Butch was greeted by a large crowd of reporters, photographers, and of course ordinary citizens. He then reached into his pocket and he pulled out a handful of nickels and he just tossed them to the crowd. At 1.15, a large touring car appeared in front of the hotel and Butch was escorted to the limousine by his personal secretary, a guy named John Lenahan. Now, Lenahan wasn't his real personal secretary. He was actually the hotel's assistant manager. And then it was off to the train station in style, a total distance of, get this, one city block. He could have walked it faster. Upon arrival at the station, McDevitt stood up and he gave a humorous speech, which included the following. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to spend every cent I own on an experiment. I'm going to spend it to boom this infernal town. It needs it, and I have long recognized that it needed it. Of course, I have no other ideas. I am certainly going to try to enjoy myself while I am doing this. I'm going to New York, the greatest city in the world, in the palatial special train which I have engaged in which you now see approaching, drawn by yon huge mogul locomotive. After his speech concluded, the city of Wilkesbury gave him a tremendous send-off as he boarded the train that he'd rented for the trip. He claimed that the train alone had cost him $516. That's nearly $13,000 today. It consisted of three Lehigh Valley cars, which included a Pullman car to carry Butch and his newly hired staff, 
Plus, there was an empty baggage car to carry his one suitcase. That's it. McDevitt was greeted by large crowds at every stop along the way to New York, and each and every time he would simply step to the rear of the last car and address the crowd. Upon his arrival in New York, McDevitt hired an expensive taxi cab to take him to the famed Waldorf Astoria Hotel. During his first meal at the hotel, Butch ordered just about everything on the menu. That included 18 types of cheese, 11 different cocktails, and many, many desserts, my favorite part. He had heard the millionaires had bulletins sent out just to tell others how they were doing, so he instructed his doctor to do the same. Dr. Sweeney constantly took McDevitt's pulse, and he prepared bulletins update the public on his health. Nighttime brought an outing with composer George M. Cohan. In a strange and totally unplanned coincidence, he attended a play about a fake millionaire. And upon conclusion of the second act, Butch was led backstage and he gave the lead actor a baton that was supposedly made from anthracite coal and studded with diamonds. Fake, of course. At Hammerstein's theater, Butch was offered $1,000 to appear for just one week in vaudeville. He politely turned the offer down. I don't want to commercialize this thing. I'm having a good time and I just want to go home broke when it's over. By the end of the evening, millionaire for a day John J. McDevitt had become broke Butch McDevitt. He had spent nearly every penny that he had. So he boarded the train for New Haven and he headed for home. Upon arrival back in Wilkes-Barre, his secretary determined that Butch still had $1.58 remaining. So McDevitt handed the $1.50 to the porter, and his last $0.08 was given to a newsboy. McDevitt may have thrown away a fortune in a very short period of time, but his life would forever change. He was now famous across the nation, so he received hundreds of invitations to give speeches coupled with numerous offers for him to appear on the stage. He turned all but one of the offers down, declaring he would only appear for charity only. One month later, on February 18th, McDevitt declared his candidacy for Congress. He had visited President Taft at the White House and released the following statement. Say for me that the next representative from Luzerne County will be your royal highness. I need the money, like the place, and have decided to respond to the voice of my people. So prepare ye way for John J. McDevitt, millionaire for a day. Don't bother checking the history books to see who won the election. Neither the public or McDevitt himself took this seriously. His next stunt, however, would further confirm that McDevitt was ever the jokester. On October 1st, Butch announced he was going to have a statue erected in his memory. He felt that the people of Wilkes-Barre were not treating a great man like him as well as they should, and of course a monument would assure that he be remembered forever. Now Butch was very generous when it came to having the statue erected. Not only would he commission it himself, but he would also do the unveiling. His plan was to ask the city to have it erected in the city's public square park, but if they declined, he would ask the county commissioners to consider his application. And should they refuse, he would purchase a small parcel in the central part of the city and have the statue erected there. 
as you could probably guess, neither of his applications were approved, nor did he buy that tiny parcel of land. But that wasn't the end of McDevitt's statue. In March of 1913, a letter that he penned was published in the newspapers asking the nearby city of Scranton to provide a location for his statue. Of course, that failed, so a few weeks later, he requested that his statue be placed on the grounds of the state capitol. And guess what? They didn't bite either. On December 6th, Butch announced that he had once again come into a large pile of cash. In this case, it was $3,000 from a publisher in exchange for a book about his life. And he was going to use it to charter a special train of six cars with Washington, D.C. as a destination. His plan this time was to request that Congress place his monument in the Statuary Hall in the Capitol building. So imagine this. On February 3rd of 1914, 30 uniformed police officers, which were all paid for by McDevitt, of course, led the way as Butch made his way to the Lehigh Valley train station to embark upon its trip. Following right behind him was a 50-piece band and a crowd of approximately 2,000 gathered at the depot as a six-horse truck carried along the bronze statue. And when I say bronze, I really mean it's a plaster of Paris cast that was finished off with a bronze-colored paint. Upon its arrival, four coal miners hauled the life-size statue of John J. McDevitt up to the platform. Butch offered up the following speech to his fans. Look here, my friend. Congress will accept it. Will a polar bear accept ice? Will the Mexican government take money? In years to come, people will read their histories, then say, that Congress which bagged that McDevitt statuary was some national body. It leaped upon the chariot of opportunity and tore the throttle wide open. The train then blew its whistle and Mr. McDevitt was on his way to Washington. I love this part. Along his journey, the statue was stood up on the rear platform of the observation car, and that was so people could wave to the statue as it went by. Upon his arrival at Union Station, an estimated 2,000 people greeted him indoors, and another 5,000 were outside. A parade led by a group of policemen on bicycles was followed by a 25-piece section of the Marine Band. Next in line was a truck that read, quote, We carry anything, which in this case meant the McDevitt statue. Upon arrival at the Sterling Hotel, two piano movers carried the statue up to the suite of rooms that Butch had rented for the night. The only difference between Napoleon and myself is that Napoleon led an army and I did not. Some people say I am crazy, but the only difference between eccentricity and insanity is $100,000, and I am darn near broke. I am the most successful failure that ever lived. Butcher woke the next day from the bed in his seven-room suite, and he was told that a line of chorus girls had called to pay their respect. Tell them to wait until I have my champagne bath and I shall receive them. Then it was off to the Capitol to present the statue. He was informed that each state is only allowed two statues in a statuary hall, and Pennsylvania unfortunately had used up their allotment. In addition, Speaker of the House Champ Clark denied McDevitt a permit to give a speech on the Capitol steps. So McDevitt and his bronze-coated likeness boarded a train and headed right back home to Wilkes-Barre. 
As you could probably guess, that wasn't the end of the news about his statue. In August of 1915, it was announced that the town of Port Chester, New York, had agreed to provide a site for the statue. But there was one catch, and that was McDevitt had to pay the town $5,000 for its long-term maintenance. That'd be about $118,000 today, and it certainly was an amount of money he did not possess. So one month later, McDevitt was at the Milton Fair attempting to present it to elected officials there. Of course, no dice. By December, he was trying to convince Scranton once again to take it, and this was followed by an attempted giveaway in Atlantic City the following year. Finally, on September 3rd of 1917, it was announced in the press that the Bronze Beast would finally find a home in the small town of Highland, Pennsylvania. I'll give you an idea how insignificant that is. Today, the town only has a population of 492 people, so basically he's putting a statue in the middle of nowhere, so it really wasn't the ideal location for it. You're probably wondering how McDevitt supported himself and came up with the money to have that statue made and, of course, you know, drag it all over the place. Well, that's a good question, and no one really knows for sure. There are two things that are certain. First, he was not independently wealthy. And second, he was a really awful businessman. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He had operated a cigar store, but that went out of business in 1913. He also ran a couple of mildly successful publications, but they offered him no great source of income. After his millionaire-for-a-day stunt, McDevitt became an in-demand speaker, which one must assume eventually became his main source of income. The one thing that is certain is that McDevitt continued to run for various political offices. In 1913, he ran against 51 other candidates for Wilkes-Barre City Commissioner. Now, realizing that the odds were against him winning, he opted to be a candidate for Clerk of the Courts on the Democratic ticket. Of course, he lost. In 1915, he came in fifth out of five candidates for the county treasurer. He ran as both a Democratic and a Republican candidate. Now, the winner, James H. Evans, secured 12,667 votes, while Butch, even though he was on both tickets, received only 681 votes. Losing by such a wide margin didn't stop McDevitt. In 1916, he decided to run for the highest office in the land. He wanted to be President of the United States. And in typical McDevitt fashion, he went all out to announce his candidacy. Once again, with $3,900 in his pocket, a train was rented and he made his way to New York City to hold a political convention. Gentlemen, you are called into convention for the purpose of nominating me for President. After a lengthy speech and lots of drinks all around, McDevitt left and headed for Atlantic City. According to the New York Tribune, he went there to, quote, await the pleasure of a notification committee appointed by Mr. McDevitt to inform Mr. McDevitt that Mr. McDevitt had been chosen nominee of the Mr. McDevitt party. 
You may be shocked to hear this, but he lost the election to Woodrow Wilson. In 1917, Butch ran to be the clerk of the courts and received 963 out of the 9,792 votes cast in the primary. In 1918, he dreamed of becoming the next governor of Pennsylvania and received 27,000 votes statewide. His campaign spent a total of $1.08. He blamed his loss on the fact that the winning candidates received more votes than him, and he also was listed at the bottom of the ballot. He suggested that he may change his name from Mick Devitt to Act Devitt so he'll appear at the top of the ballot in future elections. In 1918, McDevitt turned his focus to the war, and he used his popularity to help sell more Liberty Bonds. After the war, he tossed his hat into the ring to become the president of the League of Nations, but no one, of course, took him up on the offer. And then he was back to his old ways of getting his name in the papers. In 1919, he ran as a Democrat to become the Register of Wills, and he came in sixth out of six candidates. He received 1,448 votes out of 20,683 that were cast. Starting on November 11, 1919, Butch found himself in the middle of a big political mess. City treasurer candidate R.M. Kaiser was able to find 44 voters in the 13th Ward who had voted for him, but the official tally sheet indicated he had received only 35 votes in total. Testimony in court later revealed that the election board opted to file false returns to get their candidate elected. One witness testified that he observed McDevitt burning some of the ballots. Now, arrests were made and a couple of men went to jail, but Butch somehow managed to escape prosecution. Butch went back to doing what he did best. He continued to lecture, entertain, and of course run for political office. One of his worst defeats occurred in 1927 while running for Wilkes-Barre mayor. He received just 12 votes. In 1931, he opted to run for five offices at the same time. That was mayor, treasurer, school director, register of wills, and recorder of deeds. Even age never slowed him down. He was 71 in 1946 when he decided to run on the Democratic ticket to become a representative to the Pennsylvania State House. Once again, he lost, garnering just 918 votes at a 3,476 cast. The next year, he lost to be Wilkes-Barre mayor with 511 out of 2,894 votes. McDevitt never married, but twice he publicly set out to find a wife. On February 13, 1915, an advice column titled Elizabeth's Letters featured a letter that began, quote, Dear Elizabeth, this is the first time I've written to you and would like you to answer the following questions. 1. Is Butch McDevitt still in Wilkes-Barre? 2. Is he still looking for a wife or did he get one to suit him? 3. If not, I would like to meet him. Next thing you know, Butch is in the news in search of a wife in both Boston and Atlantic City. A prophet like me is never appreciated in his own country. That's why the girls in Wilkes-Barre will have nothing to do with me. What can I offer a girl? Well, nothing, except for a loving heart and amiable disposition, comfortable living, and the use of two or three automobiles. 
More than 100 women wrote to say that they marry him, but he chose none. He did come across an advertisement from a Brooklyn, New York woman named Martha Stevens who was in search of the perfect man. Butch immediately wrote a long letter to the editor of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle explaining why he was the perfect man. A portion of it read, Some time ago I advertised for a wife and received a large amount of mail, but I must admit that I didn't happen to come across the girl that summed up to my dream miss. That's why I write this letter, thinking that the woman in question might hit my fancy. She didn't bite, but once again he received a great deal of publicity from the search. On April 4, 1927, we once again find Butch attempting to find love. How's this for a bit of deja vu? He chartered a special train that he called McDevitt's Romance Train, and it was bound for New York City. His destination, once again, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, but this time to find the love of his life. Now the train did go to New York as planned, but there was one big problem. It left without him. Butch had somehow missed the train. John J. McDevitt passed away on February 3rd of 1951 at 76 years of age. Up until that point, newspaper articles had been written about him every single year since the day that he had pulled that millionaire for a day stunt way back in 1912. He had run for just about every political office in the land, far more than I've mentioned in the story, and he lost time and time again, but he never lost sight of the humor of it all. So I'll leave you with one last quotation from McDevitt, this one written in May of 1946. So, to the fellows who have a political thought, take this tip. It's an interesting venture and worth any man's money for a tryout. It's really exciting, but always remember that you must hold your head and do not permit yourself to become embittered if you fail to make the grade. Remember this also, that it's not the traits or qualities of good fellowship that makes for political success. It's hitting and getting in at the opportune time. A good sense of humor is a valuable asset and doubly valuable in defeat. So my only question is, Whatever happened to that bronze statue he had made of himself, someone somewhere has got to have it. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Volta Gracie, Volta Gracie, she's the best little skipper in the land. Volta Gracie, Volta Gracie, won't you please give this little girl a hand? That's me. Even big politicians don't know what to do. Gracie doesn't know either, but neither do you. So Volta Gracie, to win the presidential race, a hundred million strong. That's right, you can't go wrong, Volta Gracie. Keep voting all day long. Keep voting all day long. Keep voting all day long. Fill up the ballot box. Keep voting all day long. Gracie, Gracie, rock, rock, rock. My friend, are you so Gracie? Well, thanks. And now, who'd like to hear George sing a chorus? Thank you. Vote for Gracie, so I can be by myself. Please vote for Gracie, so I'll be happy on the shelf. If she's elected, I'll be neglected. So I can stay home and play solitaire and keep that silly dame out of my head. 
listen to old time radio i would suggest you start with the 1940 episodes of burns and allen where gracie allen runs for president they are among my favorite of all time the idea of having comedian gracie allen run for president was originally intended to be a short-lived radio stunt but it soon took on a life of its own of course everything was done for fun and soon gracie was making the rounds onto other radio programs running for president she ran on a third party, the surprise party. Why? She claimed that her father was a Republican and her mother was a Democrat, so she was born a surprise. The election was during a leap year, so naturally their mascot was a kangaroo, and her campaign song, which you just heard, was written by composer Charles Henderson. At the request of First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, Gracie appeared at the Women's National Press Club and announced that the surprise party will hold its first ever national convention in Omaha, Nebraska from May 15th through the 18th. A whistle-stop campaign train left Hollywood on May 9th, and enthusiastic crowds greeted Gracie all along the way. NBC, which was the network that carried the couple's show, broadcast her speech live from Omaha. Now, there was no vice presidential candidate because Gracie said that she wouldn't tolerate any vice in her administration. When the election occurred on November 5th of 1940, Roosevelt won with 27 million votes. His opponent, Wendell Wilkie, received 22 million, while Gracie received several hundred write-in votes. So here's a question for you. Today, it's pretty much standard on every channel. But when did the first lighted blue and red presidential electoral map first make its appearance on TV? I'll give you some choices. Was it one in 1968, Nixon versus Humphrey? Two in 1972, when Nixon ran against McGovern? Three in 1976, when it's Carter versus Ford? Four in 1980, when Reagan ran against Carter? Or five in 1984, when Reagan ran against Mondale? I'll let you ponder over those choices for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. In other news, here are a few additional election stories. And I think if you listen to them, you'll find out what the common theme is to all of them besides elections. On September 14th of 1938, the people of Milton, Washington, elected Boston Curtis to be their Republican precinct committeeman during the primary election. 
He won by 51 votes. Now, the problem was that Boston Curtis was a mule. It turns out that Kenneth Simmons, the Democratic mayor of Milton, arranged the whole thing to both embarrass the Republican Party and to mostly show that people have no clue who they're voting for. A check of the election records proved that everything was really on the up and up. The mule had signed the filing notice with his hoofprint, and Mayor Simmons signed off as a witness because the applicant was unable to do so himself. As for the Boston Curtis name, the mule's real name was Boston, and his owner's last name was Curtis, hence Boston Curtis. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In October of 1959, it was reported that a female rhinoceros named Kakareko had won the Sao Paulo Municipal Council election in a landslide having received in excess of 100,000 write-in votes. She was immediately disqualified on the grounds that she'd been on loan to the Sao Paulo Zoo from the Rio de Janeiro Zoo and was therefore not a resident of Sao Paulo. Her fame quickly spread worldwide. A week later, the rhino had her name added to a ballot in Porto Alegre, along with a black bull, a goat, and 212 human beings. Then, Kakariko was nominated to be the president of the student body at the University of Havana. Unfortunately, she lost to Rolando Kubela. He had been the deputy minister to Fidel Castro before resigning to run for student president. Kakariko died of a liver ailment on November 27, 1962. At the time, a vote for Kakariko was seen as a political protest, you know, basically against political corruption, inflation, and acute shortages that were going on in Brazil at the time. Today, the term voto Kakareko, in other words, vote for Kakareko, is a term commonly used to indicate a protest vote. And the last tidbit for today is also from Brazil. Back in 1965, an 86-year-old woman named Dona Maria Consuelo complained to police that her neighbor, Adam Camara, was constantly screaming vulgar and insulting comments at her. An officer investigated and discovered that none of those words were coming from Camara's lips, at least not at that time. Instead, they were coming from his green and yellow talking parrot named Eloterio. The detective took the bird back to the station, and soon the parrot was a national celebrity. Viewers of a local TV show who had tuned in solely to hear the parrot blurt out his vulgarities were sorely disappointed to find out that the bird was not allowed to talk while on the air. 
The next thing you know, leaflets were circulating the city of Duque de Cassius, urging its citizens to elect the bird to be the city councilman. Election officials assured the public that any votes for an animal would be automatically disqualified, but the event did manage to provide Eleuterio with his 15 minutes of fame. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. Did you know the year when the lighted electoral map made its debut on network television? Well, the answer was 1976. That's when Jimmy Carter was running against Gerald Ford. Now, prior to the election, NBC Nightly News anchor John Chancellor voices thought that he wanted something different, something to distinguish NBC's coverage from the rest of the pack. The giant lighted map was the idea of NBC News executive Gordon Manning. The original map measured 14 feet or 4.3 meters tall by 24 feet or 7.3 meters long. It was set up in NBC Studio 8H, which is the home of Saturday Night Live. That show was forced to temporarily move to Brooklyn for three weeks while the Decision 76 map was being set up. The map was made of translucent plastic cutouts of each state. As each state won, a backlight would be covered with a blue or red film and then turned on. So much heat was generated by these lights that a cooling system needed to be installed prior to its operation. What was most interesting about the map were the colors chosen. Red was used for the Democrats and blue for the Republicans, which is the complete opposite of what the networks use today. When ABC and CBS created their own election maps for future elections, they used the reverse color scheme. But as viewers switched back and forth between the channels, they became confused as to which candidate was winning. So eventually, NBC had no choice but to switch to the colors of their competitors. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and in the two books that are written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. I'd like to thank Jeff Artis for voicing John J. McDevitt. He is currently an English teacher across the hall from my classroom, and he was also a student in both my earth science and physics classes many, many years ago. My wife, Mary Jane, read the Dear Elizabeth letter. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. At LASIK Plus, we know LASIK is a big decision, and every one of our patients is unique. That's why we customize your LASIK journey to you. I'm so busy right now. We offer a mix of convenient days and times, including 30-minute virtual appointments to fit your schedule. I would love it, but I have astigmatism. We treat thousands of patients with astigmatism every month with great outcomes. LASIK Plus is making your journey towards 2020 vision all about you. So visit MyLASIKOffer.com today to start your LASIK journey. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.